understanding that a lot of our patients don't know what the numbers mean, we were going to show it to them in a color-coded way, stuff they could understand. If it's green, you're good. If it's yellow, pay attention. If it's red, you need to call somebody. And so creating a connection between those measures and the daily actions and choices was a big deal. So the ability to have that set up and then we worked our way into coaching, you know, helping people set goals, helping them build up their confidence that they were going to be able to make the changes that were needed, supporting them in the ways that they needed. That's how we kind of got into that process and then testing it out. Priscilla Pimu was born in Nigeria into a family of seven children. With her Nigerian first name that translates to I am what God has said, her sense of purpose in life was conditioned at an early age. Brought up in a playful and abundant family environment, her education set her on a course to a career in medicine and a worldview conditioned by American culture led her to a life in the US. She studied medicine at Nigeria's Benin University and gained her PhD in anesthesia. In the face of a turbulent political environment in Nigeria in the 90s, her older sister persuaded her to move to the US. Landing in Atlanta, Georgia, Priscilla has built a successful medical career at Moorhouse Hospital in Atlanta. By 2003, she realized that educating patients about their lifestyle behaviors, daily actions and choices around health goals was the approach to addressing long-term chronic illness. Starting out with the Microsoft grant to build an early online platform, she's now scaled it to build a community of coaches in clinics but also to embrace volunteers from churches to educate patients on their lifestyle behaviours. Calling this culturally congruent coaching, Priscilla has developed a highly effective platform for addressing people's inadequate nutritional knowledge, confronting their inactivity and reducing incidents of smoking. It's now ready to scale beyond the success of Atlanta. And now, having had her TED Talk translated into multiple languages, her value-based care programme is gaining global coverage. Towards the end of this interview, Priscilla reflects on the issue of race in the US the different cultural contexts, arriving as an immigrant Nigerian in 1993 versus the challenges her children have had growing up in the US, code switching and dealing with racism and becoming resilient adults. This is a shorter interview than normal, but I hope you're inspired by the vision, empathy and purpose of Priscilla Pamu. All right, Priscilla, welcome to the Impossible Network. Thank you, Mark. And we have to say a big thank you to Ginny Pinder for the recommendation that we interview, yeah. I thought that was so cool. Well, let's get started. Obviously, we want to talk about your life in the area of innovation and healthcare and the work you've been doing and what you've talked about with your TED Talk. But we always like to understand the backstory of our guests and particularly their upbringing, the impact of their parents and other influences as they grow up and the direction they've taken in life and particularly serendipitous moments. So I believe that you were born in Benin City in Nigeria. I was born in Kaduna. So Kaduna is in the, it used to be in the north central state. So it's like in the north of Nigeria, close to the middle. North of Abuja. Yes, it is north of Abuja. Yeah, okay. Have you been? I haven't been, but we interviewed Bilikis and uh, Wally from WeCyclers. They have a, a social enterprise in Lagos. Awesome. So they... They, they came, we had a face-to-face interview with them at Neuhaus in New York back in, must have been late December probably, when they were picking up an award from the King Budwen Foundation's Award for their awesome. innovation work in the city. So yeah, let's talk about your upbringing okay. and the influence of your parents. All right. So I was born, what, 
66. That was when Nigeria was in the throes of a civil war. My family is from the south of Nigeria. In fact, my maiden name, last name is Ofili, and that typically is for people who are from the east. I don't know if you've heard of Biafra. So that's what the yeah. war was about. Of course. Biafra yeah. seceded after they were persecuted. So now my family was not Igbo, but my dad's last name was Igbo, and he lived in the north at a time when there was a pogrom and people were running back home to where their native homes were. And so my mother tells the story of my birth and when I was a baby, how the Nigerian army was going around looking for people that they considered to be spies. And apparently somebody had said my dad was a spy. And so they came by our house in the middle of the night, which is when they would do things like that to come pick up the person. And so they called for my dad and, and he confirmed that he was who he was. And they asked him to come out and they had soldiers and they had guns. And my mom said she was, she was crying or she was talking, I think. I was a baby, so I was crying when they got up in the middle of the night. So she said she had me in her arms and she was talking to me in our language, which is Igala. And it happened that one of the, one of the soldiers understood the language. And so he asked my mom, he said, what language are you speaking? And she, she said, it's our language. That's what I'm speaking. It's our language. <laughs> and so mm -hmm. he, he told the others that it can't be because this man's not Igbo. But that's how my dad was allowed to live. Wow. And I tell that story because my mom always brings it up. So in our culture, you get named based on, I guess, technically it should be some, I guess, some idea of who you're going to be in life. And so they give you a name based on that. And basically my name was, is Eikojoka. And basically what that means is I am what God has said. So I am God's choice. And that's how I was raised essentially. As, so I, I grew up in a family of what? We were seven, seven children. And I was the fifth in seven, out of seven in a very hierarchical setting, but I always had the sense that I wanted to help things go along. I wanted to help things move along. So I was always that child that was helpful, that was dutiful, that would do what I was asked and what I wasn't asked. I would look out for things that needed to get done. Were you conscious as you were growing up of the impact of your name and the expectation on you being given that name? Do you think that conditioned your attitude and your behavior? I think so. My mom was one that would constantly remind you, you know, if, if I went to school and I was upset about something or something happened, she would say, Priscilla, listen to me. What is your name? What is your name? So don't let anything keep you down. Remember your name. She said that she still says that to me. Like if I have a challenge and we get in a conversation and I'm crying or I'm expressing how I feel, she'll always come back to that. Remember your name. So for me, it was empowering because it felt like it gave me that sense of purpose that I was here to do something and do something important. Now, I didn't always walk in it, but that was something that was there from early days, you know. And how, what about the, in such a, a vibrant 
hierarchical and hierarchical upbringing and family setting. What was play like and your ability to, your freedom to explore and to find adventure? So that we were free to do. I grew up in what would be, so we grew up in Kaduna, would be like firmly middle class. And basically we would just, so you, the only duty you had was to go to school. You maybe had a few household chores, but apart from that, you were free to play and there were a lot of children. So we would go out and run around and I played soccer with the boys. We we ran, you know, like you would do different things. We had to make up a lot of our games. You know, you didn't have like store-bought toys or things like that. You made things that you played with. But yeah, we we had a lot of fun. All the neighbors, all the kids would be out. We would just play. There wasn't much restriction in that regard. As long as you did what you were supposed to do in the house and you had gone to school and done your homework, the rest of the time was yours. You just ran around and you had to come home before it was dark. So that's how we lived. It was pretty freewheeling. I mean, you're obviously have your journey, life journey is taking on in an interesting direction. But at what stage did you get a sense of the world being bigger than just Nigeria? I think it was from an early age. My dad worked for the United States Information Service. He was a librarian. And in Kaduna, they had a the U.S. consulate was in the same building as the library. And so some of his work was basically getting people, you know, helping people do their exams in order to go to school in America. So it was always part of a discussion at home. And, and you know, we like the movies. <laughs> if you have TV, you see these things and you kind of learn to look at those things and think about them, but not to the extent, obviously, or to the depth that you come to understand when you're actually living in it. You're looking at it from the outside in. So all that you ever see is all the good stuff. You never know. Underbelly. I grew up watching American TV as well. And I remember in the 70s being uh, fed the diet of Kojak and visions of New York City. And suddenly, when I I first moved here in 2010, I, I got to the building where I was moving into. I went, this looks really familiar. And it was the building they used in Kojak for the police precinct. Oh my goodness. How bizarre. <laughs> what did that feel like? Extraordinary weird. Ex- very weird. <laughs> you walk in and you're like. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the, the sort of the uh, uh, impact of American culture. Even in, in secondary school. So, so you understand this because you sound British. So we oh, yeah. have. Scottish. Scottish. School. Okay. Scottish. I'm sorry. We we have primary school and then we have secondary school. And secondary school for us typically was boarding school. So we're in school. All the kids are in school. You don't go home. You stay in the school. And as entertainment, say on weekends, the British Council or the U.S. Consulate would come and they would screen a movie for us to watch. I remember then, I don't remember the content of the movies, but I remember just the experience because um, I remember watching them. It's a mad, mad world. I don't remember anything about the movie, but I remember the title. (laughs) Or they would bring us to do cultural shows at the British Council and they would tell us about, you know, Britain and things like that. So, yeah, that awareness of the rest of the world was always there. I don't know if you've heard, apparently Nigerians are some of the most traveled people in the world. Yeah, We're always going somewhere. I guess it's because all of that is in the conversation and it's out there. So you do hear about it a lot. 
Growing up in that environment, was it an environment of abundance or did you experience scarcity? Until I was, how old was I when I went to secondary school? I didn't realize we, I think we were poor, but I didn't realize it until I went to secondary school. I thought we were just fine. Like we, I wore hand-me-downs. I had a lot of siblings. I remember, I was telling someone this story not too long ago. I remember when, so you go to elementary school and then school was kind of easy for me. I remember at the end of the school year, there'll be like two or three days when there was no instruction and the kids just went to school to play. And my dad would not let us go to school on those days because there was no, the teachers were doing their own thing, maybe grading or whatever, I don't know. But the kids would just go to school and just play all day long and then come home. And so I didn't go to school. And apparently there's an exam that we took. I didn't even know it was a big deal, but it was a common entrance exam. And there was notice that I had been selected to go to an interview. So Nigeria had these schools that are called unity schools that were put in some of the states. They were supposed to be a way to build unity after the Civil War. So they would bring kids from different states and they would all go to school together. And so that was one of the schools, but you had to have a certain level of performance to get selected to go to those schools. And so I was selected and it was time to go for the interview. I remember my mom stayed up at night. She knew how to sew and she made me, you know, my clothes and stuff. And we had my brother's shoes and she polished them. I remember that night we got all ready and everything. I was feeling cool. (laughs) And I got there. And then I realized, oh my God, people are wearing brand new things. I feel raggedy. That was when I started to know that we must not have money. (laughs) Before then, I had no idea. We were fine. We were just living life. Yeah. What was the overall educational experience for like for the young Priscilla? So elementary school was easy. I didn't have to do anything. Everything came easy. And then I go to this school where all the smart kids go to. So I got a rude shock. (laughs) (laughs) when I wasn't the smartest kid in the room I didn't know how to deal with it it took me a minute (laughs) to figure that out but besides that it it was challenging in terms of I needed to work hard but that was fine but it was it was a really I thought it was a good experience because I made friends that I still have till till now Um, we all went to boarding school together so we were essentially in You know, like we lived in the school and we spent most of our time together. Lots of friends. That was the first time. So I grew up Catholic. Um, We went to church. I did catechism and everything. But it was in secondary school that I first discovered, you know, Pentecostal, you know, that whole thing. Mm -hmm. Personal relationship with God. And boy, was that exciting. So that was that was secondary school. It was lots of new experiences. It was it was a good time. I enjoyed it. How did people react, going back to your name, uh, you said it was uh, God. God's choice. God's choice. Did people back in the school days relate to people's names and talk about it? How children reacted to names? It didn't come up a lot. So, you know, I, I go by Priscilla and in general, that's what everyone knows me by. It's not something that came up in conversation. It's not something that had any kind of bearing on my day-to-day life with other people. This was usually at home in conversations with my mom. So it wasn't something that came up. And what about teachers? Were there any particularly influential teachers or mentors? Yeah, I remember, oh, I have to tell you the story of Mr. Sen. 
He was funny. I still remember his full name, <laughs> Mr. Mm-hmm. Sumangal Sen. He was an art teacher. He was the nicest guy. I remember him as really tall, really laid back. And he would, when we did art, I had zero artistic talent, like zero, zero. Even stick figures were a thing for me. <laughs> and so we would sit in class and he would put us outside and we would draw flowers and things. I noticed very quickly that for those of us who had zero talent, but were willing to work hard, we would get the A plus, 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 plus with the plus pluses <laughs> falling off the page. And then the people who actually knew how to draw got grades like B <laughs> C. So those of us who did, you know, like he was just funny like that. But what doing that made us all want to work hard and just do what we did. I really like that about Mr. Sen. So it wasn't that you thought you were like a superstar with drawing, but you realized that what he wanted you to do was put in some effort to try to get something on paper and stuff like that. So I really remember Mr. Sen and I liked him. In elementary school, we had this teacher. His name was Mr. Afalaya. As I was looking through the questions, that was when I thought about it. Mr. Afalaya was, I think he was my teacher in third grade third grade or class three. And, and basically I remember him because he was a real stickler. I think it was because of him that I got like neat penmanship. We used to write with these things called pen holders. It's probably before your time. No, no, no. <laughs> would stick them in a pot of ink <laughs> and then blot and then write. If you had like splotches, you got in trouble. If you, you know, it wasn't the ones where you sucked the ink up. This one you were dipping and writing with. And he was a he was a stickler with like handwriting neatness and things like that. But he was also like a really nice, it was like almost like a gruff kind of person, like nice, kind, kind of older guy. I remember him as well. As far as others, mentors, I've had many through the course of my life, but I'm just gonna highlight those. Okay, so what what led you to focus on medicine? And what took you in that direction? So, you know, growing up is fairly limited. If you were good in the sciences, you know, we were about professions in Nigeria. If you're good in the sciences, you're like, you want to be a doctor or you want to be an engineer? (laughs) And so for me, engineering wasn't that attractive because I struggled with math and things like that. But like biology and chemistry and physics and things like that weren't that complicated for me. And so I decided, I guess I'm going to be a doctor. Plus, I had an older sister that I thought was just the most amazing person. And she was a doctor. So I was like, I'm going to be like her. So pretty much that's how I made that choice. Weird, huh? <laughs> yeah. It's it's a common story with a lot of people that we interview that there's a, a interest in engineering, law, or medicine. It seems to be you know, expectations of parents as well. Yeah. Talk to us about the the journey from um, Benin University to coming to the U.S. So, yeah, I guess I went to school. School was great. College was nice. You know, I, I hit some bumps in the road. I remember in college was my first time ever failing at anything. I had, I failed pharmacology. I thought I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I, I didn't know what to do. That was just like, what? How does this happen? But I got over it. I learned from it. I met my husband when I was 16. We were both in college together. We're still 
here. And so basically after school in Nigeria, you do national service, you do your house job, housemanship. I finished all that. And then we settled. Essentially, we were going to get married and raise a family. I was living in Nigeria, I think it was in 1993, when we had all of that. We had that election. I don't know if you guys remember that. MKO Abiola, it was this whole thing. So Nigeria has had these bouts where we would transition from military rule to civilian rule. And then it would go for a while and then the military would come back and then there would be this whole transition period. So that was one of those. We had military rule and there was going to be this whole transition. It was my first, I think, as an adult where I remember really engaging with the electoral process and voting and everything, we were all very committed. It was like, yes, our votes are going to count. This is going to be a thing. But the elections came and and the, and half they started to release the results and then they stopped releasing the results. And after that, there was mayhem. You know, he was put in jail. A lot of things, there were strikes. It was just a lot of displacement. And by then, I think we had our first son. And I remember my husband and I would talk about it. Like, you know, so I told him, like, I grew up in a family that didn't have money, but we had access to the best education and everything. And he grew up, his family is a little better off. And we still went to school, that schools that were really good. And I remember at that time, it just looks like, it looked like the social fabric in our country was just, just kind of unraveling. And, and I guess we bought into the whole, American democracy business. <laughs> and so that was when we started to have that conversation. You saw that laugh, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I realize, you know, you don't know and you buy in and then you get here and you're like, oh. Uh, yeah. And okay. how times how times change as well. Yeah. Yeah. So you you moved here in what, 93, 94? No, I think eventually my first time here was in 1997. So we started to have those conversations then. There were strikes, the schools would be out, the schools would be back in. There was just a lot going on. And so that's when I seriously started to think about it. I have an older sister, like I said, and she had been here from many years before. And originally she thought as soon as I graduated med school, I was going to come out here. But at the time, I was like, no, I'm fine. We're settled. We're having a family. We're just happy. We're going to live here. And then all that happened. And I think we started to talk about it. And she was like, yeah, if you want to come, you know, I'm here. And, and that's, that's kind of how that worked out. So I completed um, a fellowship in anesthesia in Nigeria. And it was, I came here to do some presentations of the research. We did some work in obstetric analgesia. And I remember how excited I was. So the situation in Nigeria at the time was like, it was a lot of things. I don't want to dog Nigeria out, you know, but there were just a lot of things that were going on. It was almost like, so for my colleagues that were doctors, the only way that you made a wage that made sense was, oh, you were diverting patients from the government hospital to your private clinic and doing things like that. It was almost like you couldn't have integrity and succeed. If, if you wanted to do business, you had to be willing to pay bribes and nothing just like you couldn't say, I'm going to follow the rules and I'm going to succeed. So there was that level of frustration. And then when I came here, it just seemed to me, I remember the conversation I had with my husband and he's like, what's it like? And I was like, 
it just feels like there's so many ways to be yourself and still be successful. It felt like there was a lot of opportunity. And that's how we made that decision. And that was to Moore House. Yes, I came here. I came to Atlanta and I landed at Morehouse. I worked at Morehouse for a year as a research associate. And then I went into residency training. And after that, I stayed on as faculty. And I've been at Morehouse. I don't move around much. (laughs) (laughs) So you've been, you were recommended to us and you did your, your TED talk around the, uh, your insights and your platform you built to address this of the issues around chronic illness, of which a huge percentage of the population here in the US and growing around the world suffer from chronic illness. I think the figures that you quoted are six and 10 uh, suffer from some form of ongoing chronic illness. How did you focus and evolve from when you were looking at, I think you said you trained in your, in the university and uh, your PhD in? So for me, it was I know that when I became a doctor in Nigeria, I started out my TED Talk like that. It was a thing, right? We would see patients and the ones that were easy to treat were the ones with acute problems. For me, at least, I felt like I was actually making a difference. They come in with something acute, you treat it, they're well, they leave. For the ones who had a chronic condition that required the person to know a little more about their health and how to handle things when they were not with you, know, with you or you were not the one taking care of things, the results were a lot more spotty. I always felt like, I don't think I'm making a difference here. I don't think I'm able to influence this the way that I should. And then I came here and I realized, so I, our residency program is at Grady Memorial Hospital. And I noticed right away, you know, this, this sense of sometimes it showed up as frustration. A lot of times it was just this feeling that you, you were not able to do the things that you know could be done for your patient. And some of that was the patients may not have the knowledge about their health to make the right choices or decisions, or they don't have the skills necessary. And once I started to see that, it was something like you feel it in the room. All the doctors, if we sit together and we're talking, that's what you're talking about. I can't seem to make this change. If it's your patient with diabetes, I can't seem to get the sugar down. They don't understand this. They don't understand that. So I started to focus on educating, educating in clinic, trying to get people to understand how to make changes. And then very quickly realized, you know, you can do that for three or four patients. You spend too much time, then your clinic starts to lag and you're in trouble because people are waiting longer and longer to see you. But eventually, I think things just came together. It was, I think it was in... 2003, 2004, thereabouts. It was really early on working with some colleagues. It was like, yeah, we got a grant um, from Microsoft and it was the opportunity to come up with this whole way of, oh, we want people to be able to see the results of their physiologic measures. Understanding that a lot of our patients don't know what the numbers mean. We were going to show it to them in a color-coded way, stuff they could understand. If it's green, you're good. If it's yellow, pay attention. If it's red, you need to call somebody. And so creating a connection between those measures and the daily actions and choices was a big deal. So the ability to have that set up, and then we worked our way into coaching, you know, helping people set goals, helping them build up their confidence that they were going to be able to make the changes that were needed, supporting them in the ways that they needed. That's how we kind of got into that process and then testing it out. 
that was very, uh, uh, I mean, that's for 2003, 2004, it's way ahead of any movement in the whole functional health movement, way ahead of, uh, of health data and data being used to give people real-time feedback in terms of their conditions. And very, uh, well, refreshing considering what the, the US health system is like, which is really geared towards prescribing people drugs to deal with the symptoms rather than the causes and feed the drug companies coffers. So it was quite radical what you were doing at that point. It didn't feel radical because if, if you sit with a group of doctors, most of the time, those are the things that you want, especially primary care, right? Those are the things you want to do because you're not as intervention focused. You're trying to make sure that long-term people are doing well. Obviously, if there's an acute deterioration and they need any intervention, fine. But you know that the best results come from being able to just change the, the baseline so that people are doing better. It was, it was different. I remember it was amplified after Katrina. So I think Katrina was in 2004. And a lot of those patients came to Atlanta, right? And people would come with, they didn't know what medications they were on. They didn't know, you know, like they relied on, they would go to the doctor, they get a set of bottles, they would take the medicine, but they couldn't tell you I'm taking this medicine at this dose, I'm taking this and that. So part of what we built into it was that personal health record that was, we were one of the early people that used the Microsoft Health Vault. So they would build a personal health record on there where they would put in their medications, the different surges they had had. So anywhere they were in the world, all they had to do was be able to log in and they could show the doctors what they had been treated with. And so a lot of that, we had those conversations then. It was also, it was still a part of empowering the person so that they could be an effective partner in their own healthcare versus doing things to people. It wasn't, to my mind and to my colleagues' mind, it wasn't a, an effective way to handle it. And the term you use to describe this uh, is culturally congruent coaching. Is that correct? Culturally congruent coaching came along a little further along the line. This was something that we observed. So I told you we started to do coaching and we tried it in, in clinic settings, right? We would, there's the physician and then they have an assistant. Recognizing that the visit is, is busy, it has a packed agenda, the clinical visit. And so many times the other stuff, like spending time really getting into the details of what was needed, wasn't something that there was, based on the structure of the healthcare system, that there was time for. And so we figured along the lines of this team-based care for diabetes or people with chronic illness, let's train someone in the practice to engage. So that was the coach. So in, in the first iteration, we trained a variety of kinds of people who worked in clinics. There were medical assistants, there were nurses, different people that we trained to serve as the coach in the clinic. And then we had good results for those who would engage. So if a patient came to clinic, if the patient you know, would get in a conversation with the coach, we would get some results. We had some impressive results with that. And then we went to a church where, you know, we were, it was, it's a huge historic church in Atlanta. It's Big Bethel. And we talked about this program as a way of helping to empower the patients to kind of be more engaged in their own care and be able to make changes that they needed. You know, we hear 
for us at Morehouse, it's almost orthodoxy, right? You always, we're always looking at the numbers around health outcomes for people of color, African-Americans, you know, we, we have all the bad health outcomes. And so it was, for me, it was always a no brainer. The way that you deal with this is to empower the individual. And how do you empower the individual? Education is one, skills is another. And so when we went to the church to do this, the people that we trained as coaches were not medical. They were just regular people, retired school principal, retired person that worked in alcohol, tobacco, and firearms, you know, bureaucrats, retired people. To be coaches of other members of the church. Yes. All right. Okay. So we, we had a structure, we had skills that they needed to learn, and those who passed and showed that they were proficient were the ones who were then made coaches. And we had comparable results. And in some places, better outcomes in the church than in the clinic. Remember, the loop in the clinic, the doctor was in the loop. It was doctor, coach, patient in the clinic. In the church, it was patient, coach, and the doctor was outside of the loop. And so it relied on an additional step for the doctor to know what was going on. And so we looked at it. We looked at conversations that they had. We, you know, ongoing, we would have these calls with the coaches. And it became clear to me right away that that was the origin of the whole cultural congruence thing, that there seemed to be a better connection and fit between the coaches and the patients that was not strictly related to your knowledge or content, like medical expertise. It was more about how you engage and have a conversation so you can get to the deeper issues that the individual is dealing with. There were things that came out that I had never heard about when we did it in the clinic. People who would admit to things, I guess when they go to clinic, they get dressed up and they're not really going, you know, you're not going to show your vulnerabilities, say financial vulnerabilities, or you can't read this label. We had people who the coach found out after about four or five interactions that they were functionally literate. Nobody else knew. And so you know, that was something that person was caring and would never have shared if they didn't feel a level of comfort and connection and security for them to even sh- show that level of vulnerability. For some people, it's, it's, I don't know how to use this budget to eat this way. I have a limited budget. How do I make this work? So anyway, that's how we came up with that. And that's the work that we're doing now is just trying to understand What is it about those conversations beyond someone just having an innate way of connecting with someone? Is it gender? There's some research around gender. There's research around race congruence being, you know, people are more likely to, I guess, if you feel like you have something in common with somebody, then you go in a little quicker into a deeper conversation with them or place of intimacy with them in terms of how you share information. But we're finding other things in the data as well, those recorded conversations that we're very excited and we're going to share very soon in the publication. But yeah, that's where that came from. So is this something that can scale across the country that other communities can embrace and, you know, to address the inadequacies of people's sort of nutritional knowledge, their inactivity, the incidence of smoking? Presumably this, you've almost got a, Uh, your prototype developed that could scale across all the states? 
I absolutely think it will scale. Why do I think that? I'll give you an example. After I had my my last child, my number four, I got big. (laughs) And then I decided, what am I going to do? Oh, let me look at Weight Watchers. (laughs) I could not relate. (laughs) I don't eat that way. Like, I don't eat American food. So if they're giving me portion, you know, like foods and it's, you know, different things that are not natural or native to me, I would have to make several steps in order to be able to make that conversion. And it was just hard for me. I think it's the same for folks, any kind of group that's not the majority, where whatever their cultural bent on things is a little different. And so for that reason, I see value in having people who understand the culture of the individual working with them to develop the skills that they need. The other part with scaling, which we're still kind of talking about, is how to make it. So currently the way it's set up, it's only been paid for with grant funding. In general, the the healthcare funders So there's a general, now there's this whole idea of value-based care. So if your patients are doing well overall, you get paid for it. But before now, the way healthcare was paid for was was by the number of things you did to people, right? So if you do this procedure, do this test, do this, there's payment for that. Versus if your patient is doing better, you get paid for it. It seems obvious, but that's not how it gets paid for. It gets paid for by the things, or at least that was the paradigm. I know the Affordable Care Act attempted to shift it to value-based care. There's a lot of resistance, but if it's not being paid for, like you're not being paid for spending a lot of time counseling someone to help them do better. So trying to come up with ways to scale the coaching component so that people do well. I think the population health side of things working is one way to see it get paid and scaled up. But even outside this country, I see the opportunity. Several of my colleagues, friends have reached out and said, can you help us set up these programs? These are things that people are going through. And I see this. When I looked at the TED Talk, the languages that it was translated to, I was like, my goodness. And I get these messages from people, you know, asking. So I think it has legs. We just have to figure out how to make it not so person intensive. So for Western countries where things where you have to do in person cost a lot, lot more and may make it less accessible, figure that out. Well, I suppose what we've seen with COVID-19 is rise in telehealth in the areas of mental health that was Basically, for a lot, I think seen as taboo that you would never have mental health uh, treated over uh, as online, and we've mm-hmm. seen the rapid change there. So I think you know, as this as you evolve and you scale this, I think it's really exciting how you can start to embrace communities of coaches that will take the pressure off under-resourced, overworked doctors, and to sort of be experimental and change the way we think about the paradigm of of health and and treatment and, and like you say, value-based care. So we're going to jump into quickfire questions. Okay. What principles do you stand by? So faith, family, and I think just, just kindness, just being kind, kindness to one's own self and kindness to others, accepting people for 
you know, for who they are, rather than trying to have them to fit some standard or fit, you know, some preconceived notion of what they ought to be. I also firmly believe that each one of us, okay, back to my name, <laughs> was put here for a purpose. I recently came to that, that I didn't serve anyone by, by playing small. Your purpose is not about you getting big or arrogant or puffy headed. It's about you actually making a difference for other people's benefit. That's why you have the gifts that you have that God put in your life. So I don't know if that's helpful. Very true. Uh, what hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but turned out to be the right decision? Leaving Nigeria. <laughs> yeah. And at the time, I didn't even realize what the cost of that was. I did not. So for us as a family, so for me, it's been, it's been a clear path. It's been harder for my husband. And I think it's taken a toll, even though he's really supportive and has been just the greatest partner. It's been, it's taken a toll. And then when my father was ill and his dad was ill, I realized all over again, the cost of emigration because you're at a distance, right? And you're trying to do things to help. And it just, it's tough. So that, I think it was, was tough. The one person who said to me when we were leaving was my father-in-law. He's like, you're taking my son to another country. So what are my grandchildren going to be? He asked me that. And essentially I had to say to him, you know, we are who we are and we're not going to forget that. But coming here at first, you know, we're idealistic and everything's working out. I'm raising black boys that are now men. And very quickly you learn that. So I had no context. It's funny, this kind of with what's going on currently, I had no context. I didn't understand a lot of things, things that people who are black, who grew up here know because in their families, it's talked about and they understand it. And so we come here and we're living life and everything, you know, we're grown up. We're not in the same settings as our children. We don't, I didn't see the things that they were dealing with for a long time because I was so busy trying to make life and trying to work and trying to do different things. And it, it took a toll on our children. And I'm glad that now we're in a place where we can actually talk about things and learn the kinds of experiences they, they have had and be of support to them so that they understand, you know, like we, we came from a different context. We were raised in a different context and then we bring them here and we're raising them in this context and thinking it's that context. <laughs> Understanding the shift. How soon did you become aware of the different cultural contexts and the issue with racism here? For the children, what they were facing, they were teenagers. So when we came here, our oldest was, he was born in 93, he was four. I didn't realize it for real until he was a teenager. When they, were, when they were about 15, that's when I realized the kinds of pressures that they were facing. And now when we talk about it, they go back to when they were in elementary school and they're telling us things. These kids, they learn. I heard about this term called code switching. I didn't know what it was, but the children learn it from an early age. They're one way at home. And when they go out, they're another way because they have to fit and they don't want to be different and they don't want to get picked on or anything like that. But yeah, I learned that 
a lot later. <laughs> but ultimately, I think, you know, there were so many things that happened that got us to where we are that I have to say to myself, it was for a reason that we're here. And so even though we had those experiences, we're going to have to learn what we needed to learn from them so that they can be who they're supposed to be in life. Mm-hmm. And probably, uh, I don't know if uh, your father-in-law is still alive. He died. Uh, hopefully they'll, um, they'll heal, your sons and children will make him proud regardless of where they live, Amen. who they are. Right now they're making us really proud. So I'm, I'm really proud of them. They, they have, they're so resilient. It's like, I never knew all this stuff, right? And now it comes out and we're having these conversations. That's how tough these kids are. Like they kept going, they kept it together. So my oldest son is 20, he's going to be 27 in October. My next son is going to be 25. Oh, he was 20, 25 earlier this year. And then I have a daughter that's 23 and my baby is 16. <laughs> uh, I bet the 16-year-old doesn't like being called that. Oh, she's cool with it. Oh, yeah? She actually <laughs> told me once, like she came with me to New York when I was at 10. She was like, technically, mommy, I'm your only child. All the others are adults. <laughs> <laughs> Like, how do you figure? Like, you're number four and you're the only child. <laughs> She's like, yeah, technically, because they're adults. They're not children. I was like, okay. I, we've sort of run out of time. So I'm just going to ask you um, sort of the final couple of questions, unless you've got an extra couple of minutes. I do. Yeah. Okay. We ask people the impossible question, which is what your advice would be to someone that uh, is about to graduate, go study. That is a, degree, a dream, a goal, a grand ambition. It's been told that's impossible. So what I say to them, and I've said this to my kids, is if, if it's your dream, it's not something that somebody else told you you should dream. If it's your dream, you will find a way. No matter what obstacles you run into, it may not be plan A that gets you there, but you will get there if it's your dream because something put it on your heart. Lovely answer. What Netflix or uh, Amazon series that you've watched during the lockdown that you think uh, someone should watch? I watch Nollywood movies on Amazon on um, Netflix. (laughs) 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 I watched, my husband's like, what the heck are you watching? I was like, yep. Bettina, do you know what Nollywood movies are? Nollywood? Uh, No, but uh, maybe I can come figure it out. Oh, no, no. I actually, I know what it is. It's a movie from Nigeria. From Nigeria, but, sorry. <laughs> from Nigeria, like soap operas or something. Oh, they're movies. Yeah. They're all kind of movies. Yeah. There's action, there's romance, there's all kinds yeah. of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. It's a big industry in Nigeria, isn't it? Sure is. And now they're on Netflix, so they're getting paid. That's good. So uh, it's like uh, Nigeria is like the Hollywood of Africa, isn't it? If I can say so broadly. Nigerians are very, very, very productive. I can tell you that. And there's a lot of us. So you hear about us. (laughs) Okay. So what book would you like us to offer the guests that come up with the best comments on Instagram or on the website? Depending on their age. Actually, it doesn't. I thought about this. The book that I have read recently that I really like is by an author called Brene Brown. It's called Dare to Lead. Oh, yeah. She's great. Dare to Lead. I think it's an awesome book because it brings, it helps you go inside and bring out 
the best. So it handles like toxic cultures in any situation, just getting to honest conversations, learning how to do that with your team so that work is not draining and you're able to work well with people. I, t- I talked about it so much. I was visiting my daughter in Athens, Athens, Georgia, not Athens, Greece. <laughs> 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 we were visiting and, and I forget, she was telling me about work since her first job and she's a man, system manager at some company and she's talking about what's going on. And I was like, oh, you should read this book. You get to do this and you, it tells you this. And she was like, oh, okay. And then her friend, her roommate, who's a teacher, first time teacher was talking about, you know, challenges with his students. And he was kind of, so they both, talked about they were going to get the book and work through it. And I think they found it very, very good. So I think it's a good book. Have you read it? Haven't read it, but it's been recommended to us okay. uh, quite a lot recently. Really? And uh, also we've, yeah, we've heard, because we, a lot of the um, people that we've interviewed touch a lot on mental health. So she comes up a lot um, when the, in the discussion around mental health and resilience, particularly because of her, her whole views on vulnerability being a strength. Mm-hmm. And her writing. So yeah, her name is is commonly used and uh she's good. And that book is really good. She also has her own Netflix show now. Like they have a it, she there's a Netflix thing on um Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, Brittany Brown something. I think she talks about and uh, vulnerability and like her topics, but it is I just saw it last night actually. Okay. I did not know that. And final question, who should we interview next? Given that we only rely on our our guests to tell us who we interview. As soon as Jenny tapped me, I asked this woman that I work with. She's a coach that I work with. Her name is Ekene, E-K-E-N-E, last name Onu, O-N-U. Wonderful. And is she based in Atlanta? She's in Atlanta. Cool. So Ekene has, she, she was trained as a pharmacist. She worked as a ph- pharmacist for a few years. And she just, she said she felt drained. She didn't, it just wasn't feeding herself. And so she stepped back from that. And then she went and did some additional work. And now she works, she's, she describes herself as a transformational coach for high achieving women. And basically what she does is, work does what we call inside work so that you can show up as your best self. I think she's amazing. Sounds wonderful. We definitely will look forward to interviewing her. Sounds great. Well, I just uh, wrap up and thank you um, and uh, Priscilla and acknowledge you for the amazing visionary work um, that you're doing uh, in changing the way we think about healthcare and for your characteristics, I think of um, your empathy comes across and clearly your God-given purpose. So all we say is... <laughs> yeah, there you go. Say that again so we can get that right. Mm-hmm. There you go. It means this that God has said. So pretty much God's choice. Literally translated is this that God has said, but that translates to God's choice. So there you go. I think you're on a very interesting journey and it's just beginning. Thank you. I really appreciate that. All right. Well, thank you very much, Priscilla. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It was great to meet you guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye-bye. If you like the show, please subscribe and ideally give us a five-star rating and a review because it helps more people find us. 
Just go to iTunes, Spotify, or your favourite podcast player to listen and subscribe. This show is an Impossible Network production and is produced by Bettina McKaylee and Elaine Castillo-Keller. But for now, be curious, be creative, and seek out serendipity. See you next time.
Priscilla Pimu was born in Nigeria into a family of seven children. With her Nigerian first name that translates to I am what God has said, her sense of purpose in life was conditioned at an early age. Brought up in a playful and abundant family environment, her education set her on a course to a career in medicine and a worldview conditioned by American culture led her to a life in the US. She studied medicine at Nigeria's Benin University and gained her PhD in anesthesia. In the face of a turbulent political environment in Nigeria in the 90s, her older sister persuaded her to move to the US. Landing in Atlanta, Georgia, Priscilla has built a successful medical career at Moorhouse Hospital in Atlanta. By 2003, she realised that educating patients about their lifestyle behaviours, daily actions and choices around health goals was the approach to addressing long-term chronic illness. Starting out with the Microsoft Grant to build an early online platform, she's now scaled it to build a community of coaches in clinics, but also to embrace volunteers from churches to educate patients on their lifestyle behaviours. Calling this culturally congruent coaching, Priscilla has developed a highly effective platform for addressing people's inadequate nutritional knowledge, confronting their inactivity and reducing incidents of smoking. It's now ready to scale beyond the success of Atlanta. And now, having had her TED Talk translated into multiple languages, her value-based care program is gaining global coverage. Towards the end of this interview, Priscilla reflects on the issue of race in the US, the different cultural contexts, arriving as an immigrant Nigerian in 1993 versus the challenges her children have had growing up in the US, code-switching and dealing with racism and becoming resilient adults. This is a shorter interview than normal, but I hope you're inspired by the vision, empathy and purpose of Priscilla Pimu.